0: Well, I always take exception to the notion that the State House lacks transparency. And I challenge people when, uh, when that is uh, brought to my attention or somebody asks me about it.
1: Steve Sherlock here for Franklin matters Franklin public radio anywhere on the internet wfpr.fm and in the local FM area dial at 102.9 for the Franklin mass arena here today with a special session with our state rep Jeff Roy good morning Jeff happy Tuesday
0: Good morning, Steve. Yes, happy Tuesday. Can it get any better than this? It's uh, it's not raining, a little chilly out, but uh, fall is upon us.
1: Fall is here. Yes, it's October, the leaves and colors are starting to change. You know, this is one of the beauty periods of fall in New England, or even just New England in general. Obviously, I like the four seasons here because I like that variety. Um, This is one of the better times because you can still get out without having to truly bundle up like you need to do in winter. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And the summertime, sometimes, I mean, you know, it's just too warm. There's only so many layers you can take off to be cool, right?
0: (laughs) Well, I think uh, Sunday's Harvest Festival was the perfect example of uh, the uh, layering technique. Yes. Uh, you know, we had no idea what we, what we were going to expect when that sun was going to come out and uh, just how many layers were going to be appropriate. But I can tell you, it was very comfortable the entire day mm-hmm. with the layers.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because as long as you had at least that wind layer, that certainly broke <laughs> yeah. the, the wind and some of the chill that was associated with it until those suns popped up here and there and then stayed for a while before finally just, you know, disappearing. <laughs> yeah. So November is approaching, um, but I thought it, we'd try to do something a little bit different today. Um, in other places and other times, uh, other interviews as well have covered, you know, the development of your political career from school committee, town council to state rep. You're very public in a number of ways, and you've got your newsletter, you've got regular office hours. You post video from the House floor speeches uh, periodically and certainly on specific topics. You're a regular contributed to the More Perfect Union broadcast on Franklin Radio. Uh, Frank Presents just interviewed you. That's been shared. I've been fortunate with Ted McIntyre to have you on two episodes of our Making Sense of Climate. And it sounds like there's going to be more as we go through the roadmap piece because you're heavily involved in that space. You completed a wonderful presidential library tour, which you also shared at the Historical Museum. You're public as well on the Pan Mass Ride, Ben Gardner's Boat. Also on Sunday, you entertained the community with some great music. And the Safe Coalition, obviously, you were in- instrumental in that, and you're still helping Food Pantry and other local nonprofits. So there's a whole lot of information already to say, who is Jeff? <laughs> what is he doing? So in my observation, I come up with kind of two things that I think stick to you, and I want you to explore on these a little bit. So clearly, I think you're a lifelong learner, um, and you're looking for meaningful challenges. Have I missed something, or is that kind of what wires you? Uh,
0: I I would say, indeed, uh, that's definitely in my wiring. It's definitely in my DNA. Um I've always been a curious person. Um, You know, even as a a little kid, uh, I remember having my electronics kit and putting things together to see how they work. It wasn't enough for me to just see uh, a device, Uh, you know, I'll give you the clear example of a watch, you know, Uh, you can look at a watch and it'll give you the time. But I was the type that said, well, how does it figure out uh, how to uh you know tell us the correct time and how does what's the movement of the of the uh items on the dial so always uh, been a curious person and that has uh led me uh throughout my life um i would say a big part of my life is uh, being a a musician um started uh, playing an instrument uh, as a second grader and uh, i continue to play music here I am over 50 years later, still doing music. That's an important piece of my life. It's a grounding piece, but it's also uh, something that helps me tap into the right side of my brain and uh, uh, you know, the creativity aspect. And creativity, I think, is important for the work um, that we do in the legislature. And in terms of looking for meaningful challenges, uh, let me talk a little bit about my my statehouse experiences, because I think that'll encapsulate uh, the search for challenges. So, um, you know, my first uh, two terms, I was just, uh, you know, trying to get a handle on, um, you know, how the house works and uh, how, how state government uh, processes and, you know, how the budget works. And I did a lot of uh, watching and learning, trying to identify leaders in the building Uh, and spending time with them to uh, learn uh, most effective ways to lead. So my third term comes along and uh, I'm appointed as the vice chair of healthcare financing. And healthcare financing, dealing with uh, insurance coverage for uh, hospitals and doctors and patients and sorting through all that is probably one of the most uh, complex areas of government and uh, about 60 percent of the state budget is devoted uh, towards health and human services. So very uh, large area and very complex area. So I started out as the vice chair and uh, about a year into my term, uh, the chair had passed away suddenly. Mm. And uh, that thrust me into the role uh, as chair of that committee and I had a meeting with the speaker and he said, uh, we need to roll out uh, a major uh, piece of healthcare care legislation. Um, you know, the chair had started it, uh, but you need to finish it. And, uh, you know, are you up to the task or should I bring somebody in uh, to do it? And I said, uh, I said, how much time do I have? He said, well, I need it done by June. And here it was February. I said, uh, "All right, I I will uh, I will dive right in." And uh, actually, uh, did a crash course on healthcare finance. Uh, met with uh, folks all over the uh, the industry, and actually uh, drafted a 185 page bill uh, that was presented on the House floor in June of 2018, and uh, and and passed overwhelmingly. Uh, and so that was my first foray into a complex uh, delivery of, uh, a, an omnibus healthcare bill. And, uh, you know, it was, it was an incredible learning experience. It was an incredible challenge, but, uh, I think I rose to that challenge and was, uh, you know, very delighted with that work. I know the speaker was very delighted. And, uh, so the next term, my fourth term comes along and, uh, I think as a reward, or at least I thought as a reward, he gave me, a uh, an easier committee, which was the Joint Committee on Higher Education, uh, I thought it was going to be an easy ride, but uh, higher education is uh, an equally complex area, and you're dealing with uh, you know presidents of universities and professors and and uh, unions for uh, professors and. Uh, You know, the myriad of issues that go with higher ed, you know, we're dealing with student loan debt, we're dealing with increasing tuition, we're dealing with demands for more scholarship aid. Uh, And uh, just as I had started that job, Mount Ida College in Newton had closed Mm -hmm. suddenly. It was April. They announced we're not going to be back uh, for next year. Uh, so all of you students need to find somewhere else to go. And as, as, um, as luck goes, uh, and, and I don't, uh, luck is a horrible word, but uh, I did hear from a, a parent in Franklin who said, my son just completed his junior year at Mount Ida College.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He has nowhere to go to graduate and get his degree. How can this happen in a place like Massachusetts? A few minutes after I got that call, I got a call from uh, Dr. Paula Rooney at Dean College. Uh, she is a uh, was the treasurer of the uh, Association of Colleges and Universities in Massachusetts, and uh, called me very upset uh, about the significance of a college closing like that and suddenly. Sure. How how bad that was for all of the students involved, and how bad it was for colleges in general, and saying you know we have to do something about this and but the other striking thing is she made an offer she said if you know of any student who's impacted by the sudden closure of that school let them know they have a home at dean and we will graduate them with a degree uh so that was uh you know very telling about the type of person she was and how committed she was to higher education so immediately i knew we had an issue uh to deal with and uh By November of 2019, we had a bill on the governor's desk uh, that uh, provided a process for closure of higher ed institutions and uh, sort of requirements for how they could execute a closure and, and how they had to give, you know, 18 months to two years notice before they could be allowed to close. And they had to show their books for the first time to the Mm -hmm. Massachusetts Department of Higher Education so that uh, DHE could uh, see if there were some signs or signals that a school was going to be closed, because we did not want what to happen to those students at Mount Ida to ever happen again. So that was a a, a big success uh, for higher ed. And uh, and right on the heels of that, uh, campus sexual assault was uh, an issue that was rearing its ugly head. Uh, Betsy DeVos was the Uh, Secretary of Education uh, for the Trump administration. And she had issued uh, a set of regulations that was catastrophic uh, to victims of sexual assault on college campuses. So uh, we immediately turned our resources towards developing a bill to address uh, uh, campus sexual assault, to provide resources for students who may be victims, uh, to provide due process protections to uh, folks who may be charged with an offense and really to provide a robust, uh, procedure for handling these, uh, incidents on higher ed campuses. And again, that was something that involved a lot of, uh, meetings with, uh, folks and developing a, uh, set of, uh, laws that could work. So right, you know, that session, amazing, uh, Uh, the amount of work and the complexity. And then I come to the current session that we're in right now. And uh, I remember having my conversation with the speaker, I said, uh, I think I've done everything I can do uh, in the higher education space. Um, uh, I would love a challenge. Uh, I'd love for you to return me to healthcare finance, because I think I can do some uh, assistance in that uh, arena. And uh, he called me a few weeks later. He says, I know you really want to get back to healthcare finance. He said, but I need somebody uh, who can take over telecommunications, utilities and energy. He said, I need a curious mind. I need someone who'll put the time in because uh, climate change and energy are some of the most important topics uh, for government today. And uh, you're going to get to work on things like offshore wind. Would you do that? And uh, I was extremely flattered at the, at the offer and uh, jumped on it. And uh, if, if I thought healthcare and higher ed were complex, uh, I didn't know the beginning until I got <laughs> uh, into uh, energy and environmental issues and uh, really uh, dove in. And uh, the funny part was uh, when the speaker gave me that assignment, he said, I hope you've been following the roadmap bill. And uh, the climate change uh, bill that we started in the last session, uh, it's been on the governor's desks three times. He's vetoed it and sent it back to us all three times. And he said, as your first task as the committee chair, I need you to finalize that. And I need you to produce a bill that the governor will sign. Ah, So so you uh, asked
1: for a challenge.
0: (laughs) I did ask for a challenge. And I said, "Uh, when do you want this done? He said, as soon as possible. And I'm happy to report that five weeks later on March 21, 2021, uh, we delivered a bill to the governor's desk and he actually signed it and we set a set of goals for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to reach net zero by 2050, lower our admissions. And uh, on the heels of that, it was, okay, now that we have the goals set, what are the tools we're gonna put in place to enable us to achieve those goals. And that uh, began a course of of education and uh, learning about uh, offshore winds potential, solar energy as a potential. Uh, I've done a lot of study and research on nuclear energy, both fusion and fission. Uh, I've looked at uh, hydro, uh, you know, pumped hydro. We have two mountains in Massachusetts that uh, actually are, are the world's largest batteries, and they uh, they involve running water from the top of a mountain through a set of turbines to spin them and create energy. So we have uh, a, a myriad of options. Uh, uh, we also have, um, uh, you know, we had a meeting with uh, former DOE Secretary Ernest Moniz on uh, modular nuclear facilities and the potential that they offer. So. Um, that involved creating yet another bill, and it's unheard of to do two climate bills in one session of the legislature, but uh, I'm happy to report that uh, we did that. Uh, I was in, at an event last night celebrating the success of the uh, the climate bills, and uh, uh, several of the folks in the room said, well, we now believe that we should do a climate bill every year, not just every <laughs> session. He said, "Well, uh, your expectations are quite high. Uh, there'll <laughs> be another climate bill in the next session, but I'm not sure there'll be two again. Um, but a uh, lot of, lot of, uh, lot of engaging work, and I think um, having a curious mind has uh, has enabled me to meet these challenges, take on these challenges, and uh, has led to uh, some successful." Uh, legislation. The climate bill that we did was a, a landmark piece of legislation. Will serve as a model for the rest of the nation. And uh, I was pleased, uh, on the heels of that success, to be invited uh, to the White House a few weeks ago uh, to celebrate the signing of the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a federal uh, bill that was the first meaningful piece of climate legislation from the federal government in 40 years. So. Uh, was invited by the president to uh, have a, a celebratory signing of that bill right on the White House lawn. And uh, that was indeed a thrill and uh, just an amazing confluence of both federal and state legislation that are geared uh, to uh, stemming the effects of climate change, which are real and uh, which we've received a number of warnings. And uh, we're going to get it right and we're going to preserve this future for our our younger people who have an expectation uh, and a right to uh, good, clean air, good, clean water and a, a sustainable environment for them to live, work and play
1: and we've covered some of those uh in at least most recently on the climate side and i making sense of climate so I'll put a plug in for people to pay attention and listen to that to get into more details but one other theme if you will is as you were explaining and tying the music in band experience if you will it's I, I may be speculating but it's not that unsimilar to what you were doing in terms of the house and observing and watching because there's an awful lot of collaboration and coordination and I've seen particularly amongst bands and quartets in particular where it's very visible um the eyes contact the eye contact amongst the musicians is critical in terms of making the performance and I think that also lends itself to the work that you're doing in that regard so is is that fair
0: well I I sometimes say when I'm talking to folks about uh, how government works, um, I often say I view government as a big orchestra. And if you look at musicians in a band or an orchestra, um, you take one of those instruments alone and you listen to it. Sounds okay. Not the best. But, uh, you know, I'll I'll use my analogy. I started off as a cello player. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wasn't the most pleasant sound when I was playing it alone. But if you add a piano to it, it kind of complements the sound. When you begin to add uh, the first and second violins and a viola, and then you add uh, a woodwind section and a brass section and percussion um, where everybody's working to complement each other. The sound that resonates from that orchestra is a thing of beauty. And uh, I've always viewed my role as government, in government, to complement the work of others so that together we can build something that's uh, truly remarkable. And, um, you know, I hope and I try to inspire young people who are looking for a career in government or thinking about what we do in this business, I say, think of it as a great world orchestra. And, uh, and it, it comes right down to my, my five piece band. Uh, You know, if one of us doesn't show up, it just doesn't sound the same.
1: No same Uh, different story. Exactly. Exactly. Another piece I'd like to explore for the listeners benefit and to help share your story is clearly with the litany of what we've went through in terms of your work, your, your, devotion to other projects, et cetera. How do you juggle <laughs> your home life with your public work? I'm sure that's a challenge.
0: You know, it's it, it's a challenge, but, um, you know, I, I'm a true believer in um, you make time. It will happen. You know, I'm an early riser. I'm up at 530 every day uh, and get started on my day very early. My day can be... Uh, either at my uh, district office here in Franklin, or I could be in the State House, or I can be out on one of my many journeys, um, you know, visiting, uh, in this particular term, visiting energy sites and mm-hmm. uh, folks who, uh, you know, are in that particular industry. So I'll, I'll do that. Uh, Thursday nights is my sacred night. Uh, that's my band practice night. Uh, I consider it my bowling league. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I don't schedule anything on Thursday nights. And when people ask me if I'm available on a Thursday, I say not between seven and nine because I'm practicing with my band. And right. uh, it's a very grounding experience um, because, you know, this is a very stressful job. And, uh, you know, decisions that you make have consequences and and it can build up inside you. Uh, and I go and I play music for two hours and uh, I, I feel refreshed and energized to go again. I have a very understanding wife uh, who uh, knows how important this work is and appreciates how important this work is. And, uh, um, you know, sometimes makes a joke. If I'm home at some point, she said, what are you doing? here? You're interfering <laughs> with my schedule. Um But, you know, we uh, we have our Friday nights this is another sacred night. Uh, for the past 25 years, we've dined together. Uh, mm-hmm. at the Rome, and you can set your watch by us. We will arrive typically at 6.30 every Friday night. And even my kids, who are all adults, know that uh, if they want to hang out with mom and dad, uh, 6.30 on a Friday night at the Rome, uh, that they'll show up and meet and we'll, uh, we'll all get together. Um, I think one of the keys to this, in terms of work and, um, and family life, is I got into the um, legislative role when my youngest kid was going into his senior year
1: mm-hmm. in high
0: school. Yes, and uh, I had uh, two out of college, so I was moving into this career at a time when my kids didn't necessarily want me to be around. Here, here, and it's yep. it's interesting. Uh, Jim Valley, who was my predecessor, uh, left the legislative branch when his oldest child was entering kindergarten. So he left during the time when his kids needed him around. And I came in at the time when my kids didn't want me around. That was and, a nice uh, coincidence it, of events. Right. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, as long as you, uh, remain focused, uh, this is a, this is a, a job that you can do and, uh, you can, you can juggle it. It's, it, you know, it's complex. Sometimes it—I'm uh, not going to say it's—you uh, uh, know—easy every day, um, but we muddle through. We make it happen. Uh, I uh, consider this job to be the greatest honor of my life that people entrust me uh, with making decisions on behalf of 44,000 people. And uh, I'm honored that the speaker has entrusted me with a a leadership role that uh, helps me develop and and pass important policy work that, uh, you know, affects the life of people throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And it's gonna have an impact on their life going to 2050 and and after. Uh, So um, I take this job very seriously. I study hard. Um, I, I'm heavily devoted to this work and uh, certainly appreciate the ability to be able to do it. And uh, hopefully uh, people believe I do it well. And if they do believe that, uh, I think they'll vote for me. And if they do not believe it, they'll vote for someone
1: else. hmm. And in terms of assuming success, I know you've got certainly some other things that you want to get back to and continue the work on in climate and whatever else, other challenges are given to you and the state house. But one of the other topics I'd like to get your insights on is, and I think from your work that I've observed, at least through uh the local Franklin connections, particularly on school committee, town council, et cetera um you've always attempted to be and in many cases delivered on you know true transparency in terms of being open this is what's happening this is what we're doing this is the information in advance there's still those and I think there's a case for where the State House to a certain extent is not quite as transparent as it needs to be and I'm sure there's some efforts underway some of which we may be aware of some of which may not so to whatever extent you can share on that front and then your own, you know, kind of drive in towards that arena?
0: Well, I always take exception to the notion that the state house lacks transparency. And I challenge people when uh, when that is uh, brought to my attention or somebody asked me about it. And let me just give you a few examples. Um, the state house has uh, one of the best uh, of the legislator legislature. Has one of the best uh, award-winning websites in the nation, and uh, people can go onto that website, and they can see the text of every single bill. They can see where that bill is in the process. They can see the uh, journals of what takes place every day in the state house. They can see the roll call votes that are taken who voted, how they voted, Uh, they can watch uh, committee hearings, they can participate in committee hearings. Every single bill that gets filed in the state legislature, and there are 6,000 typically every session, every one of those bills gets a public hearing. And that's the opportunity for people to come in and express their view if they can't come in Uh, Over the last three years, we have uh, had virtual hearings where people can participate remotely. Uh, There's opportunities for people to submit written testimony. There's even a module on the legislature website called My Legislature, which Mm -hmm. any individual can sign up and have an account on uh, the legislature website, pick out bills that they want to follow. And they'll be notified by email of any action on that particular bill. That's an incredible uh, resource that's available. And it's a a resource that not many people take uh, advantage of. The other thing that um, is truly remarkable to me is that uh, I don't think many people understand that their representatives um, work for them and uh, communicate with them. Uh, In my case, uh, they can communicate with me by email, telephone, in-person meetings, office hours. My website has a way to get in touch with me. I invite people to engage with me on certain topics. I find that those who complain the loudest have never reached out to me. Uh, I have never heard from them in my life. And they complain about a particular issue. And I think to myself, where have you been? Mm. If you yeah. were so bothered by it, why did not you either pick up the phone or send an email, send a letter, do something to say, I don't agree with this. It's typically, and then people say, well, I don't have the time to follow everything that's going on. Well, I don't expect people to follow 6,000 bills. That's my job. But if there's a, a, a pet issue that is important to you, I would expect you to follow it from beginning to end, watch it work its way through the process, engage with your representative. And I can tell you, there are a ton of people that do engage with me. And, uh, you know, we talk, uh, frequently and, uh, I'm going to give you an example of the type of transparency that I pushed for in doing the uh, the clean energy and offshore wind bill. So uh, immediately, I began a course of research. Uh, started so March 21, the roadmap bill is right. signed. Yep. March 22, I said to my team, I said, "Okay, we're going to work on <coughs> we're going to work on clean energy and offshore wind." I need you to set up meetings for me uh, with everybody and anybody in this industry. Let's, uh, if we go to visit them in person, we can do it on Zoom. However, it is, uh, let's talk with people, let's see what the issues are. And I was focusing on offshore wind because I knew offshore wind had uh, probably the most promise for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in terms of identifying a robust source of energy. So over the course of that uh, six to eight months, I had hundreds of meetings with folks, and the goal was to uh, write a report. And the report was called the State of Offshore Wind in Massachusetts. And I wrote the report initially for the Speaker of the House, and uh, I delivered uh, that report to him in September of 2021. It was a 120-page report, single space, charts, graphs, everything you would want to know about how we got to where we are in offshore wind, and uh, made a series of recommendations about this is what we need to do from a legislative perspective to improve and and enhance our offerings in offshore wind. Um, Some people said to me, you can't give a huge book (laughs) like that to the speaker. He doesn't have time to do it. I said, you know what? I know this speaker. I know he's got a curious mind as well. I'm going to give it to him. Well, he absolutely loved it. And uh, a week later, he called me and he said, can I make this public? I said, I did it for you. And whatever you want to do with it, go ahead. So we released it to the press. So the press had a roadmap of what was going through our minds and where we wanted to go in the future. And then we took a boat trip down to Block Island to see the first uh, offshore wind farm in the United States. It's only uh, five or six turbines, but it's a start. Mm -hmm. So we uh, took press on this boat trip. We took uh, colleagues on this boat trip. We took uh, advocates uh, of all kind. And we went on this trip and uh, really showcased, uh, number one, what offshore wind looks like. And uh, we talked about the report and we talked about where we're going with the legislation. So people had an, uh, an open book to what we were thinking. Unheard of. Right. And then uh, three months later, we released a bill from the committee. It, uh, you know, released at a public hearing. Then over the next six to eight weeks, it was before the House Ways and Means Committee. They did their own work. They had their own hearings and they uh, modified the bill and we had another bill that uh, we brought to the House floor uh, in March of uh, 2022. Senate did a version in April 2022. The two bills were different. So when you have two different bills, you have to set up a conference committee, right. and yep. uh, the conference committee tries to reconcile the bills. Again, another unheard of moment. Uh, State House News had reached out to me. Now, that's the big uh, outfit that covers all of the statehouse activities, and it serves as a, um, a universal source of information uh, for folks uh, uh, throughout Massachusetts. They're really in the building, and uh, they mm-hmm. follow it. The they, yeah. Uh, yeah, they said, will you come and participate in a forum and uh, explain to people what's happening in the offshore wind and climate space and engage with your Senate co-chair uh, with uh, a reporter. Now, ordinarily, I'd say, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea because the conference negotiations are supposed to be private. Um, but I, I talked to the Speaker and I said, you know, I'd like to do this. I'd like to, I'd like people to know what we're thinking about as we try to get this bill reconciled. So May fifth, twenty twenty one, and if uh, a twenty twenty two. If anybody wants to watch it, it's available online. Uh, it's about an hour long. And it turns out to be a debate between the House chair, myself, and uh, the Senate chair, uh, Senator Mike Barrett from Lexington. And uh, Katie Lannon from State House News was the moderator asking mm-hmm. questions. And it happened to be the day that the conference committee was appointed. So we were doing this program at 9 o'clock in the morning at 11 a.m., The conference committee was appointed. And for the first time, I I don't believe this has ever happened in Massachusetts history. People got to see the lead negotiators of the conference committee engage in a debate about what they were going to be doing for the next several months. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were about 200 people in the room. And uh, I had so many folks who came up to me and said, wow, uh, we've never seen anything like that. You've got your work cut out for you because you uh, you and your Senate counterpart don't seem to agree on anything.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, good luck getting this done. Uh, and we were able to get it done at the uh, at the end of July, and we produced a bill that uh, we put on the governor's desk. He sent it back with us because he didn't agree with it, and uh, we finally sent it back to him. Looked at his amendments, adopted some, rejected some, and on uh, July thirty one. We sent it back to the governor, and and I invite people. And I did put this particular speech on uh, on my website uh, on July 31st. I took the floor of the House, and uh, it was really an appeal to the governor about why we did what we did with the bill, what compromise really meant. I explained to the governor. I said, "I'm not happy with everything that's in this bill." The speaker's not happy. The Senate president's not happy. My Senate co-chair's not happy. Indeed, I look around this chamber and there were 160 of us in this room. And I can guarantee you that each of you has a better view of what we could have done. But this was a result of uh, debate, deliberation and compromise. And this is what we have. And we're asking you, Governor, to also compromise. And uh, I read from his book, In one of the pages, he covered what compromise was. And I read that. I said, (laughs) follow what you have written in your book in compromise. And, uh, you know, thankfully, uh, we got him to sign the bill. And uh, Massachusetts is restoring itself as a leader in climate, uh, 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 climate change legislation. Once again, a spot that we have occupied for so long. And other states look to us to see what we do. And I think this is a pivotal moment uh, in the climate change arena. That's transparency to the max. And uh, um, I cite that when I hear people say, you know, Beacon Hill lacks transparency. I said, well, what an opportunity people had to participate in the development of this legislation. And if you look at the, the speeches that were given on the House floor on March 3rd, Speaker after speaker after speaker took to that rostrum and said, we are grateful that we had the opportunity to participate and that uh, the chair of the committee took our feedback and our input and incorporated some of the things we wanted. It was uh, probably 10 people who got Mm -hmm. up to the rostrum to say, you know, this was the most transparent process we've seen. So it does exist. And people have to be engaged. You can't sit back and expect to be spoon-fed everything, because we, we we could spend every hour of every day trying to uh, give information to people, and it would never be enough. People have to have uh, a level of engagement. I thank God you have like 10,000 people following Franklin Matters, because <laughs> that means the information is getting to 10,000 people, and you give a wealth of information in, in your site, so... Now, I'll get off my soapbox. Yeah. But, uh, I challenge anybody to say that Beacon Hill lacks transparency.
1: No. Well, thank you for for the, for the plug. I don't quite have 10,000. I certainly do reach 10 in even 20,000 with significant yeah. and timely posts, particularly around uh, election results, because thanks to the clerk, I tend to post it just a little bit before she does on the town page. So, yeah, yeah a lot of people do come and read and follow, and I appreciate that. Um, as well, I think it also highlights a couple of things. So obviously offline a little bit, I want to spend more time with you or somebody on the staff to understand. I do have an account on masslegislature.gov. Um, I found it useful in many cases, uh, particularly to share, uh, to quote, like Commonwealth Magazine will report on a particular discussion, mention legislation filed. Sometimes they include the link, sometimes they don't and sometimes I'm able to find the link to the specific legislation sometimes I can't um some of it's due to the process and I know and you know more of the details where sometimes if the legislation moves from committee to floor and then goes back sometimes the number changes uh, sometimes it doesn't. So sometimes you can track through, sometimes you can't. Um, that's an opportunity, obviously, but there, at least it's there. So it's transparent. Sometimes it's just hard to connect the dots. But understanding that and then potentially even sharing that, because that I think is an untapped resource to your point as well, that people can indeed follow a particular bill or particular legislation or particular legislator in terms of what are you doing? Cause I think it has your activities in terms of uh, your meetings, uh, particularly if you're leading as you are in the Tua technology utilities and uh energy. energy. Yeah. Um yeah, I was struggle through that. I don't know why, but <laughs> I think because it said Tua, but I keep saying A and it's not, and I probably mispronouncing the acronym as well. Um, sure.
0: talk about another really significant piece of legislation that means. took me seven years uh, to get accomplished and get to the governor's desk. Um, and, you know, some have referred to it as a legacy piece. They said, you you can leave the legislature now because you've done um, uh, an incredible bill in the Genocide Education Act
1: um the genocide that also education. I think is a bill that evolved along the way to a certain extent because you did have pieces of it, it uh, it's not that it just got filed but it evolved no. to get to the final form
0: it it evolved because of uh, research and study so we originally in t- 2014 filed the bill and the bill was to incorporate genocide education concepts into the curriculum frameworks. Massachusetts, uh, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education issues these curriculum frameworks for schools to use in determining what curriculum they're going to offer. Local communities uh, can dictate what they're going to do for their own curriculum. There are certain Mm -hmm. things they have to include, uh, particularly if it's an MCAS tested subject, Right. But for for uh, all intents and purposes, local communities pick their own curriculum. Uh, So, you know, the curriculum frameworks are advisory and the school districts can pick from them. But we thought it was a lapse not to include genocide education in the curriculum framework. So initially, that's what our legislation was. We filed it. We were successful. Uh, It was incorporated into the curriculum frameworks, which were issued in 2018. So we thought, hey, this is great. Uh, school districts are going uh, to adopt this and it's going to be taught everywhere. And uh, we saw a rise uh, in the number of anti-Semitic incidents that were occurring after 2018. And, uh, you know, it was, it was alarming to see the rise in those events, including here in Massachusetts. They were ac- across the nation. Uh, I think folks uh, certainly, remember the the rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, where some anti-Semitic slogans were being chanted by the marchers there. Uh, but we also saw that uh, you know studies were showing that uh, students' knowledge of uh, the Holocaust was fading as Holocaust survivors were dying off, and there aren't as many left today that that uh, rich source of information. Uh, was going so in combination with the the lack of knowledge of um, of genocides and Holocaust um, and the rise in anti-Semitic events, we said we have to do more than just put it in the curriculum frameworks. We have to mandate that school districts teach the topic of genocide because it's a practice that we all agree that murdering people for their ethnicity or their beliefs, is wrong. I, I don't think I could find anyone on this planet who would disagree with me as a moral concept that murdering people for what they believe is wrong. Yet genocide is something that happens repeatedly in history. Uh, mm. The Holocaust is not the, the only genocide. I mean, you, there are a litany of them. And uh, there are some that are even recent. Some are even suggesting that uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, has features of a genocide. Uh, and teaching about this inhumanity, we think, is, uh, is important and it's vital to uh, you know, ending genocide. So uh, we reintroduced the bill at the beginning of the session and, and fought and fought and fought. Uh, and finally got to some language that uh, everyone could agree upon. And it was signed by the governor in December of 2021. Uh, And it was uh, an incredible uh, ceremony uh, signing that bill. And uh, the first pen went to a Holocaust survivor. And, uh, you know, there were speeches by people who had been impacted uh, by this. Uh, One of uh, my uh, Armenian colleagues uh, referred mm-hmm. to the Armenian genocide sure. uh, during yeah. his remarks. And uh, it, was, it was just incredible uh, to, to have experienced that. And uh, um, I went and delivered remarks uh, at a ceremony at the Holocaust Memorial uh, in Boston. And uh, was just moved by the outpouring uh, of support and gratitude that we had taken that step to bring genocide education uh, to uh, Massachusetts students. So know that every school must teach that topic and to provide the resources in our latest budget, we included uh, several million dollars in the genocide education trust fund for school districts to tap into to give them the resources uh, to provide this. But that's uh, an incredible, incredibly meaningful uh, piece of legislation that, uh, um, I, I played a part in and uh, was happy to uh, lead on that effort. And it all got started by, by uh, uh, a, a woman from Medway, Massachusetts, who met me at my office hours and said, I need to teach you about the Holodomor, which the, was the Ukrainian genocide hmm. uh, nearly 100 years ago. When, when Stalin starved the Ukrainian people, I became friendly with that woman. And she taught me a lot about inhumanity and the need for genocide education. And I'm happy to report that the Holodomor is one of those that's now in the curriculum frameworks as a result of this woman from Medway showing up at my office hours and working with me for seven years to make sure it happened. And uh, that's what, to me, legislating is all about. And uh, gives deep meaning to the work and uh, a real sense of fulfillment that we were able to deliver this for every student in Massachusetts.
1: Mm. I think that's a good break point. We've covered quite a bit of ground. And I thank you for your time amongst your busy schedule, which we also kind of reviewed as we were doing this. Um, but I f- hope and think, I believe at least that w- this, this past almost hour, Um, We've been able to share some things that perhaps people didn't fully know about you and now we will have a better understanding. So as they evaluate the choice and come to approach November 8th or voting before on or before, because we do have early voting and vote by mail um, to make a good choice. So I thank you again, Jeff, for your work and sharing of your work today.
0: Well, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for all the good work you do spreading information throughout the community. It's, uh, it's very much appreciated and very much needed in this day uh, where local newspapers are dying by the thousands uh, every day. So mm. keep
1: it up. Oh, thank you. That's one of the reasons why we're bringing Franklin Matters into Franklin Cable and radio so that it truly is the community service that cable and uh, radio are also providing, and we'll be able to watch, listen, and read all of Franklin in one place. So I think that's also a coincidence of stars we were talking about before. It's lining up nicely, and hopefully we'll continue that way. Excellent. And for a quick reminder for the folks listening, we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clock and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Mañana, copyright Michael Clock and Tin Type Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.